I had a teaching series, for those that don't know, really excited about it. Before I get there, and I'm, this is part five on a shaking and an awakening. So um, the notes are available, victorychurchraleigh.com and uh, forward slash notes. And I really encourage you to go check out the notes today because I really, I'm not going to have time to go over everything I write down. I generally do it that way on purpose. So if you want more, there's a little more there. Uh, one thing I mentioned last week, and I'll just cut this now that's in the notes that I'm not even going to mention. I, I mentioned uh, last week as I talked about uh, deception, delusion the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, I talked about uh, the, the, uh, the uh, vaccination or the emergency use authorization that's been forced to, by, by many companies that people, if you don't work there, you have to get it. And then, and then you know, they're, they're showing there's been some problems and there have been some after effects. If you're challenged with that, I've got in my notes, I have an antidote for that. Is that all right? Three things you can do if fear has come on your life because of the challenges we face. Don't let the fear rule you. It's in the notes. There's three things you can specifically do. I encourage you to do that. In fact, these things I do just for my physical body myself every single day. I'm not even covering that today because it's not part of my topic, but I did put it in the notes. Is that okay? All right. So we're, gonna, we're talking about a shaking and an awakening. Today I want to open up a... a a, a, a subject that should be a part of, believe it or not, the daily life of a believer, and it's the word repentance. We don't use that in our vernacular regularly. Nobody talks about repenting or repentance a lot much today, but God thinks it's a big deal. We're going to go there. So I started the first Sunday of the year talking about the fact that we are, looks like we're in the times just before Jesus comes back. How many hear me? I was listening, and I take, I usually walk, uh, I walk or ride my bicycle on the Noose River Trail, and yesterday I took about a three-mile walk, and you know, when I do that, I'll, you know, I'm either praying or I'm listening to a podcast or listening to the Word or a book. Yesterday I was listening. Anybody ever heard of Mario Murillo? I love that man. He is a sweet man. He lives in California. I really like him. Um, he wrote a book back in the 80s that just stirred my pot uh, called Critical, Ma- Critical Mass. And uh, I read that book, and it so stirred me spiritually. I mean, it engaged me in a way that I needed to be. And then since then, when he's written books, I've usually read them. I just finished one. I'll get to what he said in a minute. I just finished another book he read. Uh, I bought a book by him uh, December of 2020 called um, um, Vessels of Fire and Glory. read it for the second time this last week. That was really good, Mario. So he stirred me up again. But believe it or not, I was walking yesterday. And looking for a podcast to listen to. And here's Mario Murillo being interviewed by Sid Roth. Anybody know Sid Roth? Uh, he's a Messianic Jew. He's got a great, um, a great program called It's Naturally Supernatural. So uh, anyway, uh, but he said something about the end times. I thought, man, dude, you got it going on. I like it. And uh, here's what he said, because usually when you talk about end times and Jesus coming back, you know, it's the booger behind the bush. <laughs> Something's going to get you, right? But I love what he said. He said, end times is not happening to me. I'm happening to end times. I said, come on now. Everybody say it. End times is not happening to me. I'm happening to end times. I said, I'm going to adopt that. I like it. Because the idea is, man, people have a boatload of needs and they don't know where to go. And you have the way of eternal life in you. And you have encouragement and you have ministry inside of you. And you can break the the bonds of fear and doubt and oppression and discouragement off of somebody's life. Because friends, after we get through with this, we're going to heaven. How good can that be? So anyway, I thought you'd like that. But uh, anyway, uh, we're preparing for Jesus' return. So I talked about that the first week. Second week, if you haven't heard this whole series, go back and listen. I think it was January 8th I talked about the fact that we have a covenant with God. And God makes covenants, and when God makes covenants, those covenants are eternal. It's incredible. You have a covenant with God through Abraham, the father of our faith. How many hear me? And God's promised to provide, supply, watch over you, protect you, and keep you through thick and thin. Yes or no? Uh, second, then, then the uh, second, third week and fourth week, I talked about the thing that Jesus said, the number one thing that Jesus said we would face before he came back was deception, and there's a brother to deception, and it is delusion. So uh, deception is truth mixed with error and, uh, and false information, and then delusion is knowing what is right but being coerced to go against the grain of what you know is right. That's delusion. Uh, 
So we talked about that last week, and I'm, uh, so so we're changing a little bit now. So uh, uh, we have we're talking, and the title of this is an, a shaking and an awakening. So we've talked about the shaking. Now I want to go to the good part, an awakening. Did you know there's an awakening we're going to experience in the body of Christ? Did you know the world is going to experience an awakening before Jesus returns? So I want to talk about what that looks like today, and I want to unpack that for you. So there is prophesied a tremendous moving of the Spirit just prior to Jesus' return. Now listen, I came to Jesus in 1976 right at the height of what they called the charismatic movement. Uh, the Greek word for gift is charisma, and or charis is the word for grace. Charisma is the, the word for gift, so charismatic movement is the movement, the fullness of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the body of Christ. And in the late 50s, 60s, 70s, and I came to Jesus in 1976, that's a tremendous move of the Holy Spirit worldwide. We call it the charismatic movement. And people by score in, denom- in the denominational world receive the experience called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Everybody say the baptism with the Holy Spirit. See, what we've done with that in recent times is swept it under the rug. Because it's not clean and nice and sharp on the edges. I mean, it'll get your life and turn your world upside down. Yes or no? But God's wanting us to take that out out the basket and shake it off and let's go after it again. Because there is the power of God that is just ahead of us. When I came to Jesus again, Baptist, I was raised Southern Baptist Church, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopal, Catholic, and on down the line. Then you got the, uh, the, the Pentecostal denominations, which would be Church of God, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Holiness, and they have all kind of variations. Uh, nonetheless, um, uh, but God began to pour out His Spirit. We had services in the church uh, that I began to attend after my Southern ba- 18 years of being a Southern Baptist. And we had people, we had a Thursday night service, and people from all denominations came to a Thursday night meeting. And Susan, I met my wonderful wife at that church, and uh, she came from a Pentecostal-type church, Free Will Baptist Pentecostal Faith. That's a big mouthful, isn't it? And uh, anyway, but I'm just saying that so many people came, and, and every Thursday night, close my eyes and see it, the whole front of the building was just filled with people. People receiving Jesus as Savior, receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it was an incredible time. And uh, the church I attended also had a Bible school in it, so a lot of my Bible school classmates really were on drugs, LSD, the uh, hallucinogenic drugs were strong back in the 70s, and uh, they were getting off of that and were still having problems with their physical brain trying to rewire itself and working properly and we'd pray for them on a regular basis but it was an incredible time of hunger for God Uh, that seems to have waned but it's coming back did you hear what I said it's coming back and we're going to see huge changes listen we're going to see huge changes in the world it's going to look dark and foreboding but at the same time there is a promised move of the Holy Spirit I've taken two um, classes uh, at least two maybe more probably more Uh, during my schooling on the history of revival in the church age and all the courses always say this anytime there's ever in the history of the church of Jesus there's ever been revival anywhere it's always on the heels of a tough time either either it was uh, natural disasters that hindered a culture or a place or it was war Uh, at the beginning of our nation the inception of us as a nation in the in the uh, late 1700s uh, you know, the Revolutionary War. And just prior to that, there was a tremendous move of God. People were desperate. People were hungry. And we've had another move of God. That was the first great awakening I just mentioned. The second great awakening came in the late 1800s. And we just came through the Civil War. I mean, my goodness. Incredible. I said, did I say Civil War the first time? I meant Revolutionary War. Well, Civil War. And uh, again, people were hungry. And there was an awakening in our nation um, uh, just right at the time of the Civil War in the late 1850s all the way through. People like uh, D.L. Moody got their beginning and many, many others I don't have time to talk about. But th- it looks like we are ripe for a third great awakening. How many hear me? So that means that, that it could also come during an extremely challenging time. Two Old Testament prophets, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Joel, both uh, talked about in different ways, but talked about a moving of the Holy Spirit that it looks like is directly ahead of us. And they used 
different terminology in, in, in a way to say the same thing. And since I've known the Lord all these 40, I'm into my four, 47th year in Jesus, uh, they're so, uh, the, the people who were at the forefront of, uh, of, uh, of just being known nationally, internationally, have, have constantly said, look, there's a moving of the Spirit coming. It's really, really going to be strong. I, uh, I cut my teeth on teachings of Kenneth Hagin, for instance. He died in 2003, but I attended his Bible school in 1980. Susan and I started in 1980. And, uh, um, and, and he would talk about there's coming a moving of the Spirit. He kept saying, the Lord is talking to me. Before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a tremendous moving of the Holy Spirit, and you want to get involved in that. He and many, many others would say the same kinds of things. How many hear me? So uh, it looks like we're in the time that's really ripe. Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The glory of the Lord is a move of the Spirit. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Darkness, behold, darkness shall cover the earth and deep, or the King James Version says gross darkness, the people, that means this is a foreboding time he's talking about. That's a time where there's an increase perhaps of wickedness. There's a, there's a change in the culture and it's not for the better. He says, but during that time, but the Lord will arise over you. Everybody say it, but the Lord will arise over you. Wow. And his glory will be seen upon you. That's talking about the people of God. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So here again, just like in the history of a revival that I study, it seems like this is a period of time that's a very difficult time on the planet, yet at the same time there's a tremendous moving of the Spirit of God and the glory of God, which is the manifest presence of God comes. And then Joel mentioned it this way in Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass afterwards, verse 28, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This is also mentioned by Peter in Acts chapter 2 after uh, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples after Jesus had ascended to heaven and that was during the feast of Pentecost and there were 17 nations from all around uh, from all around the Middle East that come to Jerusalem for this particular feast and Peter preaching actually quoted from Joel so what we know is what I'm about to read started at the inception of the church age so that's the beginning of the church age. The beginning of the last days was when Jesus was raised from the dead. But we're at the very last of the last days. Isn't that something? So the last days have been going on for 2,000 years. However, we're, it looks like we're at the conclusion of that time period called the last days. So he said, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everybody say all flesh. Now it encompasses all of culture, all age designations because it says your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, for the, now to prophesy, you have to have the Holy Spirit coming on you. So it says your sons and daughters will have an experience with the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? Then he said your old men will dream dreams. That's because they're sleeping a lot and taking a nap. I'm kidding. But young and old, they're, they're experiencing a moving of the Holy Spirit. Then he says uh, your young men shall see visions. And that's been happening Last several years, a lot, and uh, it's just incredible to see what God is doing uh, in the family of God. Verse 29, and also on my men servants, on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So it's men and women, it's all age classifications that will experience the power of God. Then he says this, and see, this, this is a wrinkle to it and shows you what the time will be like when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And uh, I, I could talk about that at length. I don't have time. Uh, unusual signs in the climate and in what's going on. And I'm not talking about climate change when I'm speaking of that, by the way. So he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Now that uh, speaks of a time of, of upheaval and perhaps war and calamity. So you got to understand, there's, the, is, there's both worlds going on. Then he says, because of the uh, fire and pillars of smoke, perhaps, the sun shall be dark, uh, turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, because it clouds the atmosphere. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord says, 
has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So again, it's talking about a climactic time and it's not all clean. We see we got these little things. We, we, we try to think of what we read about and so we envision a moving of the Spirit being wonderful, full of grandeur, full of uh, ease and comfort. That's, that's the opposite of what both Isaiah and Joel said. He said it'll be a time of calamity perhaps disaster and war. It'll be a time of tremendous upheaval. Isaiah speaks of it as gross darkness. Joel speaks of it as blood and fire and pillars of smoke. That's a climactic upheaval of time. How many understand? But he says during that time, there's going to be a move of God, unprecedented, unparalleled. The things I've heard all of my life, I've read them in church history. I've read them in recent times from those that know the Lord and come away from their private times with God. They say that that the Lord keeps telling them a tremendous moving of the Holy Spirit is coming unprecedented in a way that He hasn't heretofore. And uh, and, and one reason that I believe that probably will be happening that way is because, you know, when people get desperate, they're looking for something desperate to help them. And generally, people aren't, uh, people don't generally change during times of ease. Have you noticed that? Even in your own life, you know, when, when you get serious, when you, when you get serious, sometimes after a disaster, a personal calamity, you know, for me, I almost lost my life twice as a teenager and it rattled my cage so hard because, uh, you know, when you're young, you think you're going to live forever. You got, you know, decades and decades of life ahead of you. And if you have something that slaps your jaws and says, son, you could die today. How many of that get your attention? Well, that got my attention, eventually brought me to Jesus just before my 18th birthday. So generally, even in personal lives, people have an experience with God many times, not because they're at ease, because, you know, something just happened that rattled them strongly. How many hear me? How many have that kind of experience? I know I did. So anyway, uh, there's a tremendous move of the Spirit for, for that to happen. This is the rest of the time I want to talk about this. There is, there is repentance that has to happen. Repentance is something that we have left off. Uh, we, we have left off the spiritual manual in America. We, we don't talk about repentance. And we talk about coming to Jesus, but we don't talk about the most, one of the most important factors of coming to Jesus is repentance. So let's talk about it. Can we go there? In fact, let me say it this way. Repentance is the doorway into a fresh move of God, whether it's your personal life, whether it's in a church, or whether it's in a nation. You know, God is looking for a door to open up that allows Him to do something He hasn't done before in that life, in that church, or in that nation. How many hear what I'm saying? Uh, Peter mentioned it this way. Acts chapter 3 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice, repent, therefore, and be converted. Before you're converted, before you're changed, there's first of all repentance. You get it? That your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, he's speaking there again. Uh, What are the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? That could be alluding to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 60 and what Joel said in Joel chapter 2, there are times of refreshing ahead of us. How many want that? You know, when you think about refreshing, my goodness, that means something that exhilarates you inside, lifts you up on the inside. Is that true? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. And then He starts talking about end times, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restoration of all things. Jesus' second coming is the time of restoration of all things. And he says it, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So again, he speaks of a time of repentance so that the refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. James says it. James is the practical half-brother of Jesus. He talks about repentance in, in, a, in different language, very practical, very sobering language. James chapter 4, verse 7, this is new living. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Who makes the first move? You do. Everybody say, I make the first move. God doesn't make the first move. He's already made a move. He sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is seated by his right hand ever living to pray for you. He's waiting on you to make a move on what he did. What move? A move of repentance. 
Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Then here's how he talks about repentance. Wash your hands, you sinners. He's talking to believers here. Whoa. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Whoa. Let, your, let there, there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Why is he saying that? That's called repentance. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Wow. So how many know God's calling America? You can look at others on various levels. God's calling us as believers to, to come up another level. How many hear me? Quit, quit living like everybody around you. Quit absorbing the culture, thinking it's all right because everybody's saying it and everybody's doing it. That doesn't mean it's all right. We're supposed to be living by this book, not by what our neighbor does. God's calling Christians in America to repent of our disobedience to him. How many hear me? By living like and absorbing the actions and attitudes of American culture, which has just hit the dirt. Would you agree? And our American culture right now is absorbed in self-centeredness, the love of money, the love of ease, sexual immorality, really in its basis form. I never thought I would see the day that we're teaching children what we're teaching them in school. What a horrible thing. And then, and then we're also dealing with religious life that is self-absorbed. It's, 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 it's revolving around self-love. Jesus said we're supposed to be denying ourselves. He doesn't want me to be a better, a better form of me. He wants to replace me. I'm about done with listening to this stuff where people talk about, what's your vision for your life? It don't matter what my vision for my life. What is Jesus' vision for my life? I'm supposed to be dead. The best thing I can do with me is help me to die. Die to my flesh, die to my own desires, die to my wishes, die to what I want and live to Him. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Jesus is seated by the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affection, set your thoughts on things above, not on things on the earth. You're dead. Everybody say, I'm dead. Now, how much of you is alive? Somebody aggravates you and gets upset with you and then you quit coming to church, you're too alive. If you go to a gathering of believers, whether it's a small group or a church, and all you can see is what people are doing wrong, you're too alive. You're not dead yet. Huh? Husband, if you're not loving your wife when she's not acting like you think she should, you're not dead yet. Wife, if you're aggravated with your husband because he's not doing this or this or this, you're not dead yet. Jesus is calling us to die, my friends. Die to our self-interest, to our flesh, uh, to our narcissistic, self-absorbed worlds. How many hear what I'm saying? In fact, listen to this. Apostle Paul nailed the days we're living in. This is amplified. I love that. I'm going to quote from the Amplified a good bit today. Is that all right? Uh, because it so clearly uh, talks about Amplified is a great translation. I bought my first one in 1977. And the Amplified Bible, let me tell you what happens when you're, you know, the uh, Bible was originally written in the Greek and Aramaic language, New Testament, uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And then the Septuagint is the tr- uh, Greek translation of the, of, of the Old Testament, uh, you know, translated, what, 200 B.C. by 72 uh, Jewish sages. Nonetheless, um, when, when you go from a, 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 a language like, like Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic into, into the English language, there are shades of meaning that cannot be translated with one word. It just it's, it's not possible. Um, they did their best, and the translators and, you know, the King James Version and then the New King James Version in English have been really good translations, but still they don't capture the real nuances of thought. But the Amplified tries to take those nuances that can't be translated, and it puts parentheses and and brackets by the things that the shades of meaning that haven't been able to be translated. So 2 Timothy 3.1 Amplified says, but understand this, that in the last days will come or set in perilous times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. Now, is that not true of today? Huh? For people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centered. Boy, he pegged it, didn't he? Lovers of money and aroused by an inordinate or greedy desire for wealth. 
proud and arrogant and contemptuous boasters. Never seen it like today, have you? They will also they will be abusive, blasphemous, scoffing, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, profane. They will be without natural human affection, callous and inhuman. Boy, you see it everywhere. Relentless, admitting of no truce or appeasement. Everybody's at odds with their brother and their neighbor. Is it true? Wow, they will be slanderers, false accusers, troublemakers, intemperate and loose in morals and conduct, uncontrolled and fierce, haters of good. They will be treacherous betrayers, rash and inflated with self-conceit. They will be lovers of sensual pleasures and vain amusements more than and rather than lovers of God. For although they hold a form of piety or true religion, they deny and reject and are strangers to the power of it. That is, their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. Avoid all such people. Turn away from them. Now, you know, you, to unpack that would take several weeks. There's so much there. But how many know that's the world we're living in? I've got several other translations in the notes that I am not going to today. But listen, uh, God wants to do something fresh in the middle of this morass that it seems that we are living in. And that fresh something that God wants to do starts with that word repentance. So let's talk about it. How many know, you may not realize, but the first call of the kingdom of God to every human life is a call to repent. Now I'll define the word in just a minute, but here, just before Jesus came, his first cousin John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. Prior to that, uh, 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 Jewish theology ruled the day, and uh, you know that's just the way it was. They were still in old, what we would call Old Testament times, and there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. They call it the 400 silent years, and breaking the silence was this ragtag man uh, dressed in, in, camel, in, in, in camel hair and eating, eating bugs. And he comes on the scene. In those days there appeared John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness or desert of Judea and saying, repent, think differently, change your mind, regretting your sin and changing your conduct for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Before Jesus could come, the Jews had to repent. So he was saying, you got to change how you're thinking about life. you got to change how you're thinking about your relationship with God. There has to be a change in you. And then he would baptize people. Saying, hey, get ready, the Messiah's coming, get ready. He'd baptize them in water saying, forget about your old life. How many know when you're water baptized, you're really saying, I'm forgetting the old me and I'm grabbing a hold of the new me. And what I was before doesn't make any difference anymore. That's what John the Baptist was doing just before Jesus came. And then, and then on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching the sermon there. And in verse 38, Amplified, Peter answered, they said, well, what do we need to do to be saved? And, and the first thing Peter said was, repent, change your views and purpose and accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of and release from your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now how many know water doesn't cleanse your sin? Well, what he was saying there, the, the baptism, the water baptism that we participate in as believers, it's sort of similar to what uh, John did to the Jews before Jesus came, preparing them. When you get water baptized, you know what you're saying? My whole life has been transformed. I am not what I used to be, and I don't ever want to go back there again. The way I thought, the way I, what things I participated in, the way I did relationships, the way I did my work, the ethics of my life have been totally transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ and it is as though I'm a dead man or dead woman you come up out the water and you're supposed to be brand new and it's a sign to the world you like that maybe I'll start doing that when I baptize people <laughs> the word repentance is a really I don't usually give Greek words because you won't remember them they're in the notes but this one's really interesting it's the, uh, it's the Greek word metanoeo, and it's used 380-something uh, times in the New Testament. And uh, so it's a really interesting word. It comes from two words, meta. Meta is translated 340 times, 45 times after. And then noeo is, is a, you know, from the word nousis, which is the Greek word for mind. And so really, you know what the word is? Repentance is an afterthought or afterthinking. See, it's a person who has been 
uh, so moved by God that they can't remain the way they were. They think a different way. And because they think a different way, their actions go that way. They change. They don't live the way they did before. Does that make sense? So, so, so repentance is, is, an, is, a, is a change of mind that results in a change of the way you live. How many hear me? In fact, listen, there is no life change. Listen, without repentance. Now, here's the problem in America. You ready for this? Are you sure you're ready? Now, you know, this kind of parallels what, what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father. And that's sobering words to read. Go read the first part. Well, go read Matthew 7. That whole thing's sobering. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you read that. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord. It, you know, you say, well, what? Will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? You mean... I could say I'm a Christian and not go to heaven? Yes. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are one. I could say I'm a car because I live in a garage, but that doesn't make me one. Huh? Yeah. I could say I'm a cow because I live in a barn, but that doesn't make me one. Huh? And just because I go to church doesn't mean I'm a believer. You could have been, you know, a problem today. You can be raised in church, but church never got in you. Now watch. A lot of people today have accepted Jesus. But there's been no real life change. Yes or no? Let's see, they just accept Jesus and carry on life just the way it is. Is that true? That's not the way it's supposed to be, huh? You know, all, so, so, you know, you have an altar call at church. We call it altar call because the altar is a place where you meet God, a place where you come and pray. Years ago, they would have altars and people would come down and kneel down at an altar and accept the Lord and, and their life would be transformed. So we don't have altars today. We got steps and we have a, you know, but, but they call it an altar call. If you aren't a church person, some of these terms are like, what are you talking about, altar? What do you mean? Altar? What do you mean? So that's what they're talking about. The altar call started with D.L. Moody in the 1800s. And the altar call, you know, really, uh, the idea is, you know, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. And I've been doing that, but I won't do it anymore beginning today. Because God's been speaking to me and dealing with me, and I have a scratch inside. So listen, prior to D.L. Moody uh, doing altar calls, and there were reasons, and I don't want to get into it as to why I did that. Prior to altar calls, uh, people like uh, uh, George Whitfield, uh, John Wesley, uh, Charles Finney, others, the revivalists we call them a couple hundred years ago, they would go to, a, to an area, go to a city, and they often would have open-air meetings because there weren't buildings large enough to hold the crowd, and they would stay there for days, and people would have camp meeting. That is, they would bring their, 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 um, they would bring their carts, their horses, and, uh, and, and they would cart their children there, and they would just live there on the grounds for several days while these revivalists held meetings. And so the revivalists often, you know, they would pray. They prayed so much, and they basically read their notes, their messages. They would read them, but while they read them, the power of God would come. But what they didn't do, they would do that day after day after day, and people would hear the Word of God, and hearing the Word of God would challenge the person's lifestyle, behaviors, the way they talked, the way they acted, what they did in their personal time. And, and, but they would just tell them after they, they would pray and say, okay, you can go home. But they never give them an opportunity to come to the Lord. And finally, someone would go to, you can read this in history, Someone would go to the revivalists and say, you know, you need to hold in what they call an earnest meeting. What is an earnest meeting? Well, people are in earnest. That is, they're, they're, they're upright. They're, they're, there's something going on inside, and they're really sincere, and they feel like they're ready to, to make Jesus. Or they're so convicted about their sin, they want to do something about their sin. So you need to hold one of these meetings where they can come to Jesus. And, and, and the revivalists would say, well, okay. And he would set a time for an earnest meeting, they called it. Again, we don't use those terms today. And then people would come to the Lord. They would come screaming and crying and in absolute tears of repentance because they felt so badly about their sin. Today, sin is innocuous. We sin, wipe our mouth, and let's go have a hamburger. Wasn't that way in those days. How many hear me? I, I've said this before back years ago back in the old building on Aversboro Road. 
I had a young man sitting on my couch. He and his wife had marriage challenges. He was in the armed forces, and he was, lived at Fort Bragg, and he came to see me. He came to our church, so all that way from Fort Bragg to here. And, uh, and he sat on the couch. He said, Pastor, I asked you a question. I said, sure. He said, you know, I come to your church. And uh, so I said, well, it's not my church. I mean, it's, it's, we are the church. It's Jesus. Well, I said, look, we come here, and we sit down, and uh, you get to preaching. Your preaching just makes me feel awful. I said, hmm, what, what do you mean awful? He said, I just feel bad. I feel bad inside. Every time you preach, I just feel bad. Like, what am I doing? What's wrong with me? And he said, I, I, it makes me not even want to go. It makes me feel so bad. And you know what I said to him? My friend, that's God working in you. That's called conviction from the Holy Spirit. And that conviction is designed to produce repentance. Yes or no? So let me just say, you may be listening to me online at a future day, or you may be in the room, and if there's something on the inside of you that's not settled, and you don't feel right about your life, that could absolutely be the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. And it's the Holy Spirit producing conviction of sin in your life. Yes or no? Listen, anytime God does something fresh in you, he, he uh, un, unfeathers your nest. Yes or no? Hmm. Well, so that conviction is designed to produce repentance. Listen to the Bible about repentance. I'll give you three things about repentance and then we'll be done. 2 Corinthians seven ten Amplified New Testament for godly grief and pain. See, that's repentance it's talking about. It's permitted to direct that's the repentance of that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Godly grief and pain is permitted to direct. Again, he's talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Produce a repentance that leads and contributes to salvation and deliverance from evil. And it never brings regret, but worldly grief, the hopeless sorrow characteristic of the pagan world, is deadly, breeding and ending in death. That's repentance, my friend. So if you get to feeling weird about your life, it's probably got, you ever felt ill at ease? You ever gone through a period of time, it's like, wait a minute, why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't, I should feel good. I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm not, I'm not feeling right anymore. What's wrong with me? It could be God saying, come up to another level. It's time to make a change. So, uh, Romans 2, 4. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? If you have conviction for sin. How many know it's a good thing? So let me say this. If you can do things that you know are wrong and you have no conscience about it, your insides are hard. And that's a really dangerous place to be. People that, people that in history commit apostasy, that is, they just leave God. Those are the people that, uh, through repeated abuse, their conscience has become callous and they don't even care anymore. If you can sin and it doesn't bother you, you've got, you're a, in an extremely dangerous place. Yes or no? That's American culture right now. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? There's the word again. Repentance involves three things. You need to know this. Everybody awake? Number one, I call it renounce and reverse your sinful lifestyle. When you repent, you can't come to Jesus without doing this. Before I even say this, what keeps coming to my mind, and I said this a few weeks ago, I've been to India a lot, and I've been all over the place. I've been to Calcutta a number of times, and in several cities in India, I have been uh, into the Hindu temples, and in the temples, they're gaudy, they're, they're ornate, they have immoral things all on the, on the spires, you know, that let you recognize where they are in the city, just gaudy and, mm, Wow. And I love Indian people. I just want you to understand. But you go in there, and I've in, in, in the temples I've gone into, in the periphery, they've got all these different gods, a number of them. They've got 300 million. But they'll have a few of them all the way around the periphery of the big room where they worship, and, and, and you see Jesus there on a white horse. And see, that, see, that's what people do. They take Jesus, and they just continue the lifestyle they have and just add Jesus to that lifestyle. You cannot be saved that way. 
That is not repentance. So John says it this way. So again, renounce and reverse your sinful lifestyle. 1 John 3, 4. Amplified, everyone who commits or practices sin is guilty of lawlessness, for that is what sin is. Lawlessness, the breaking, violating of God's law by transgression or neglect, being unrestrained and unregulated by His commands and His will. Now, let me differentiate this. There's one thing for you to sin and get in the flesh and yield to a weakness and then say, oh God, what have I done? And ask Him to forgive you and help you not go towards that weakness again. That's different than living a lifestyle of, of that. How many know the difference? Every one of you have sinned. In fact, if you haven't sinned if, since you've been saved, would you please raise your hand? Because we want to figure out how you did that. <laughs> Now, all of us have sinned at different times. In fact, John said it in 1 John 1. If you hate, say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. But thank God you can confess your sin, right? Here he's talking about a lifestyle. That's a problem in America today. We want to add Jesus like the Hindus add Jesus to the rest of their gods. No, 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 no. Jesus wants you to get rid of everything else but him. So he says, verse 5, you know he, he appeared in visible form and became man to take away upon himself sin. And in him there is no sin, essentially and forever. No one who abides in him, who lives and remains in communion with and in obedience to him deliberately, knowingly, and habitually. See the difference? Commits or practices sin. Well, pastor, but you know, I knew that was wrong, but I just yielded to my flesh and did that. Well, stinker, repent. <laughs> Don't live in it. No one who habitually sins has either seen or known him, recognized, perceived, or understood him, or has had an experiential acquaintance with him. Boys, lads, let no one deceive and lead you astray. He who practices righteousness, who is upright, conforming to the divine will and purpose, thought and action, living a consistently conscientious life, is righteous even as he is righteous. But he who commits sin, who practices evil doing, see, he's talking about as a way of life is of the devil, takes his character for the, from the evil one, for the devil has sinned, violated the divine law from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was manifest, visible, was to undo, destroy, loosen, and dissolve the works of the devil. No one, this is it, verse 9, no one born, begotten of God, deliberately, knowingly, and habitually. Everybody say deliberately. Everybody say knowingly. Everybody say habitually. See, all those go together, practice his sin, for God's nature's in it. His principle of life, the divine sperm, remains permanently within him and he cannot practice sinning because he is born or begotten of God. See, when there is repentance, there's a change. So, so how do I make that practical? That means when you come to Jesus and repent, you can't keep living with your, with your, with your, with your boyfriend or girlfriend and having sex with him regularly. Yes or no? You can't keep participating in the homosexual lifestyle. Yes or no, you can't be binary, transgender. I don't know what else to say. If that makes you upset, you need to be upset. I want you to go to heaven, not hell. Yes or no. And if you're living in sin, you have to depart from the sin. That's what repentance means. You can't keep lying in your business and be a believer. There's no such thing as Christian prostitutes. There's no such thing as a Christian liar. Huh? That's oil and water. It doesn't mix. You got to make a repent. You got to make a change. How many get the idea? You can't be a narcissist and be a Christian because you're supposed to leave your self-love behind. Right? So the whole idea, again, renounce and reverse. Everybody say reverse. You know, you got your car in forward, you put the dude in reverse. You go in a different way. That's what he's saying. You like my little sounds? I know, I don't know why I do that. Number two, submit to and obey God's word and become a teachable person. See, repentance revolves submitting to God and changing. Renounce and renounce who you are, where you've been, what you've done. I don't want to have a part of that anymore. And you turn around and go the other way. At least you start down there. Well, Pastor, what if I fall in the ditch? Get up, brush yourself off, ask God to forgive you, and keep moving forward. Amen. See, Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times but rises up again. That means he doesn't live in it. When he sees it, he says, God, I'm not, I don't want that as a part of my life anymore. I repent of that in Jesus' name. How many hear me? And eventually it'll catch. 
Number two comes into play, submit to and obey God's word and become a teachable person. So James says it really, really well. Get rid of uncleanness and the rampant outgrowth of wickedness and in a humble, gentle, modest spirit, receive and welcome the word which implanted and rooted in your hearts. This is amplified again. I didn't put it in there. Uh, contains the power to save your soul. How many know if when you read your Bible, you give the Holy Spirit ammunition to deal with you? Huh? So if you got a potty mouth, you start reading the Bible, say, let no corrupt words come out of your mouth. I used to have a potty mouth, and God dealt with my potty mouth. Potty mouth's not just cursing, it's also gossip and saying things about others you shouldn't say, right? But be doers of the word, verse 22, and not merely listening to it, betraying yourselves into deception by reasoning contrary to truth. For anyone who only listens to the word without obeying and being a doer of it, he's like a man who carefully looks at his own natural face in a mirror, thoughtfully observes himself, goes off and promptly forgets what he was like. But he who looks carefully into the faultless law, the law of liberty, and is faithful to it, preserves, uh, perseveres uh, in looking into it, being not a heedless listener, who forgets but an active doer who obeys. He shall be blessed in his doing for his life of obedience. Isn't that good? So what does that mean? So you renounce. You renounce in reverse. That's repentance. You see what you've done. Say, I don't want to be that way anymore. Change it. And then you go the opposite direction and stop doing the things or at least you stop wanting to do the things you did before and you're asking God to take you through a process of cleansing you. That's where submitting to and obeying God's word comes in, Right? Then the third thing is really important, continuing to allow God to change you moment by moment by yielding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jack Hafer, who just went to be with Jesus, 88 years young, called that continued shaping. I really like that. Malachi 3, listen to this. I love the prophet Malachi. Uh, the last book of the Old Testament. Who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi 3, 2. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Ah, He's like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, that's the people of God, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. What is he saying? What is he saying about God? When he comes, he has a purifying effect in your life. Isaiah 28, Isaiah said it this way, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he mentions it this way, we're changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Or uh, uh, Clifton Chin, who was my first associate pastor here, and now he's in Taichung, Taiwan, he spoke broken English, he couldn't say the word glory, he said glory. So I say, well, that's what God does, he changes us from glory to glory. From bad to good, right? So it's a process. How many understand there's a process that takes place? And the idea is let the Lord deal with you in that process of life. I've got a lot of scriptures to share. Let me just talk about repentance as I conclude. Repentance, repentance opens your life up to a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. Without repentance, your life is like, uh, is like wet wood. You ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? You look at somebody and say, your wood is wet. That means your life ain't on fire. There's no zeal in you. <laughs> Repentance dries your wood out so the Holy Spirit can come with his fire. So how you doing? What's God saying to you? You want Jesus doing something fresh? If I want Jesus doing something fresh in my life in 2023, I need to learn to live a lifestyle of repentance. How many hear me? Let me just tell you how I live. I'm really sensitive to the Lord. If I have a thought, if I have a motive, I'm not just, if I have a thought, a motive, or if I say or do something and I know it's a little off, right then, I don't wait till I get somewhere and say, God, you know, I judge that. That's wrong. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. How do you judge yourself? Recognize what you're saying, doing, acting, being is wrong. What is that? That really is an act of repentance, saying, God, I don't want that. You know, I've broken a number of really, really, really bad habits in my life. I had a, I had a habit when I first came to the Lord. I could tell you about lots of them, but I just don't have time, uh, <laughs> really. Uh, when I first came to the Lord, I would dress people down because I felt, so if you feel bad about you, you want to feel bad about other people. And you don't like to be around people who are excelling, who do life right, who have some who have some really good qualities about them. We're always looking for a way to, to pull them down to size, cut them down to size, 
So uh, uh, I had a, a, really, a real problem with sarcasm. It didn't always come out of my mouth, but sarcasm was when you cut somebody down with your words. Sometimes it wouldn't come out of my mouth, but it was on the inside. I had an, now, how many Asians do we have here? Anybody from Asia? Asian? So I had an Asian friend, here we go, I had an Asian friend told me, he said, you know, you got that guy from China or whatever, and he's smiling at you. He said, you don't know, he, and he was one. He said, we're smiling at you, but we're cutting you down to size inside. And that's what I did. And see, God, by the Holy Ghost, said, Mitch, you need to stop doing that. In fact, I started reading 1 Corinthians 13, and I found out that love believes the best of every person. Love never gives up on other people. And see, I was sizing people up. And I did it, y'all. When I first came to the Lord, I was sitting in church. I was slouching down in the chair, and I was cool. And I had my little T-shirt on, my, my jeans on, and my, and my shoes. And I was just looking at everybody. So you think you're something, don't you? You ain't nothing. <laughs> you ain't any better than me. And I did that all the time. And God got a hold of me. And you know what he did? He sent me through a process. Every time that attitude came up. I would say, God, that's wrong. It's sin. I believe the best of them. In fact, I started praying for the people I looked down on. And now you know what? All these years later, my natural habit is to believe the best of you. Huh? How many hear me? So you can have an internal problem, an external problem, or some weakness of the flesh. I'll tell you, Jesus can change you. But first of all, you have to go through the step of repentance. Renounce what you're thinking. Renounce what you're doing. Renounce how you're living. And then turn around and say, God, I want to be different. And then go through the process of getting the word in you. And then moment by moment, when you know you do wrong, say, I judge that. How many hear what I'm saying? If 21 to 28 days starts the formation of a new habit, guess what? You can start new habits in your life by starting today, by repenting. If you can follow that through for three or four weeks, You'll begin the process of extricating that habit out of you. There's certain things the Lord set me free from, gossip, what I just mentioned, external things, internal things. I don't have time to go through the list because it's big. But see, I've done the same thing. I say, God, I don't want that in my life. And when I, when I violated or I said something a certain way, I say, God, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I judge that. It's sin. Forgive me. I'm, I have changed. See, that's how you change. Repentance doesn't mean you're suddenly and, and immediately over everything you're doing. It means it sets you on a trajectory and you're changing and you're eventually not going to be there anymore. And little bit by little bit, you, you no longer want it. You don't cling to it. How many hear me? You get something out of this?